Today we're talking about the future of browsers The APIs that we all know and love Are getting some updates or boosts or trousers We'll talk about what they've got coming up Another week, another show We'll play our song and then we'll go Welcome to Tools Day, 67th show. Welcome to Tools Day, a podcast about tech tools, tips, and tricks on Tuesdays at 2. I'm your co-host, Yuna. And I'm Chris. And today we're talking about tomorrow's browser. (laughs) Dang it, I messed it up. We had a clever name for the show. Uh, Well, we're talking about the future of browsers. um, And what we mean by that specifically is browser APIs, things that exist today, things that are coming up in the future, things that we're excited about. So you should be excited about it too. Some of these features are things that some browsers are testing and playing around with, but not all browsers. So keep in mind that a lot of them are experimental features, but um, they're pretty cool. So we wanted to let you all know about them today. Um, and we are going to be challenged to keep this show, show short, I'm just assuming, because uh, I have a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. Chris has a bunch of different stuff he wants to talk about. So we'll get right into it after a message from our sponsor today. Our sponsor today is Kobiton. It is a cloud-based mobile test lab that tests on real devices in the cloud, so not emulators. Stop using mobile test labs that overcharge and underwhelm. Most other mobile app technology limits the scope and speed of what you can test using emulators and not real devices and charging you for products that you'll never use. Kobiton is the new super flexible real device testing cloud that lets you test just like you have the device with you. There's just one portal to test on any platform or device, and they have a lot of different devices and platforms on their website. Um, So you can test in-hand, on-site, and in the cloud. At 30% the cost of AWS, Sauce Labs, and Perfecto, Copaton gives you the best value for your dollar. Right now, get double the trial minutes just for signing up for Tools Day listeners. So that's four hours of testing for free. You can go to cobaton.com slash toolsday. That's K-O-B-I-T-O-N dot com slash toolsday, T-O-O-L-S-D-A-Y, to get started today. Again, that's K-O-B-I-T-O-N dot com slash toolsday for four hours of testing for free. Thank you so much, Kobaton. We also want to give a shout out to Webflow, our other sponsor that's been supporting this show for a long time now. We appreciate you. They never ask us to play ads, but they are awesome and support the show as well. So check out Webflow as well. All right. So let's just get right into it. Chris, what do you want to talk about? (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Let Let me start off with uh, one that's actually kind of a cheat because it's actually out today, but it's rarely used. That's exciting. It's not used. It's not used that often. I don't. I rarely ever see anyone talking about it. And so, what I want to talk about right now is mutation observers. Um, actually, they okay, might be out. Explain what those are. Actually, they, they rewind. Might be, it might be out. It might not be out. I, I actually don't remember. Um, so soon. It's out in Chrome, definitely. <laughs> um, like current stable. Current stable Chrome has it. Um, but okay, so mutation observers are, um, it's a observable, which basically means you can subscribe to a function that will tell you when things change on DOM mutations. So let's say I want to find, so let's say I have a web page and I have a great div called div container. And 
I want to find out whenever a, do- a document node is added into div container or removed or anything, basically. Uh, because let's say I have a different function that's asynchronous. It fetches data from somewhere and dumps it into container, and I want to do something with it. Um, so what's the difference between this and just using callback functions or functions within that change? Um, so this basically separates out where the logic is. So you basically you say, hey, you know, I have a variety of places I could do to that, that that fetches data that does something that changes this specific document node. Um, and then I have one observer which says, hey, when changes come in, let's do something with it. And so it's kind of it's, it's a little bit different mindset. Um, and I think it really helps up clean up your code if you have like, if you have like five places that change one thing. Uh, and then you'll have one thing that observes those changes um, and does something with it. And so it's a really oh, okay. cool, yeah, it's a really yeah. cool API. It's really useful to a lot of things. If you're doing any asynchronous fetching, blah, 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 and you want to do um, uh, anything with that data afterwards inside the document node, um, use the mutation observer. It's really cool. Uh, it's out in Chrome today. Um, it actually replaced an older API called the Mutation Events API, um, which has been around for a long time, uh, like like since like 2000, which I had never heard of either. Uh, which was, which is did a similar thing. It allowed developers to react to changes in the DOM, but uh, it wasn't widely used, of course. And they were a synchronous event, so. Um, Mutation observers are fired essentially whenever it happens in a different thread, and uh, mutation events were basically there's this there's this big like callback event chain that happens when an event is fired, and mutation events were privy are subject to that, and so a little bit slower. And so, long story short, mutation observers super cool out in Chrome today. I don't remember the browser spec for the rest of it, but uh, really cool. Cool. Um- so the first one I'm going to talk about, I have a bunch of CSS stuff that's like coming up is in some browsers, not others, um, just kind of on the Chrome thread. So Chrome's actually had this in Canary for a while. And I don't know if it's in Chrome um, stable yet, but it might be because it's been in Canary for a while. Um, and that's the new text decoration properties. So this is the text decoration module level four. Um, it's still in its first public working draft. The 13th of March was the last revision to this, which was two days ago. So um, it's still in the works, but there are some things in here that it mentions that you can play with in Chrome. So one of those things is um, text decoration skip. So that means when you have like Y's or J's or G's or any letter that has descenders and you have an underline in it, it'll skip those descenders. I think the current property is called uh, ink, like something about ink text decoration ink. I don't know. I have to look that up, actually. But um, essentially, text decoration skip allows for you to do that. Um, And you can also play with what the underlines look like, what the text decoration looks like. This is the text decoration API. Oh, here is text decoration dash skip dash ink. That's what I was looking for. Um, But you can make it wavy. You can change some of the different styles here. You can change where it's placed. So you can make the text decoration appear above the content of the text instead of below it, um, in the middle of it. So there's just a lot of different things that you can play with there. Um, And that's something that's available in Chrome, but not other browsers yet. And it's still in a working draft level four, level four. So something that we can start to look out for more and more because I've seen it kind of in Chrome a lot. So hopefully we'll see it in other browsers as well. Cool, 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 cool. I love the new CSS stuff that's coming out. Um, <laughs> it's like 
Mind blowing. Just wait, there's more. Oh wait, there's more. And I I am going on the CSS front page here. Um, uh, my most excited phone in the future of the web is not the most excited, but one of my most excited is CSS subgrids, which do not exist anywhere today, um, and they are still. Uh, in discussion, basically, on what what they will actually do. So but, CSS Grid has been out for about a year now in most browsers. CSS Grid has been out, uh, but CSS Subgrid has not come out. Um, so, what is Subgrid, Chris? So, so, <laughs> subgrid, so basically, when you, just, when you declare a grid right now, you're required to have essentially a flat list of elements. So you have one container, and then you have you know 500 items inside of that um, in a flat list. And then in your parent, cont- parent container, you say, I have a grid template that says this is the amount of columns and this is the amount of rows. And then that flat list just kind of snaps to place and it's magic. But what happens if, let's say, you want to add a hover effect over a row of items? You can't right now in CSS. Um, you'd have to either do it in JavaScript, um, but what you'd really want to do maybe is add some semantic HTML and say, hey, you know, this is a, di- this is a row. I mean, um, or this is some containing element inside that grid. The problem with that is that because you define the template on the parent container, once you add another child in there, it throws off the template completely and everything goes berserk. Um, And the solution to this is subgrids, which says, hey, um, for this container element, do not declare a grid property. Just inherit your parent's grid uh, columns and rows, and so instead of saying instead of that new wrapper column, oh, you know, I see now forcing a new grid, it inherits the parents' columns and rows, and so now your the the child child of that new parent element is is corresponding to the the initial parents' um, grid templating. All right, there's a lot of parents and children, but basically it solves this big problem where you want to have wrapping jibs for either semantic or um, uh, display purposes, and you can't right now in CSS grids. You always have to use a flat list. There is a got it. Yeah, there's it's it's this wonky thing where you don't always run into it, but if you're trying to do some like a little bit more complex CSS grid stuff, you'll run into it pretty quickly. Uh, Chrome 65, which is the latest version of Chrome, just released something called Display Contents, which does something very similar, but not quite. Um, like just, grid contents? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's just display contents. It's, it's applicable mm-hmm. to anything. Uh, Rachel Andrews has a little, a little article about it, which we can link in the show notes. But it essentially says to a any wrapping div that it should not have any box model properties. So it doesn't have a display property. It doesn't have any uh, width, height, width, uh, spacing stuff. And so it can do some of the things you need for display subgrids, but not all of them. And so... Yeah, so display subgrids will be so useful. I think um, Eric Meyer said that display subgrids is require it will be required to make grids super popular. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see how that happens. I think grids yeah. are pretty popular by itself, but I think once you get into more complex use cases, subgrids become uh, really crucial, and they're not there yet, unfortunately. I can see that. I've never run into it myself, but I know that a lot of people have been talking about subgrids. So it's exciting to see that that's kind of out in Chrome, but under a different name. Oh, yeah. So display contents isn't really subgrids. It's a different It's a different spec. Um, subgrids is still in discussion. And, and, uh, What's the difference and, between contents and subgrids? So display contents is for any property anywhere. Um, it, it, means, it means that thing where it, a, a div that has, or an element that has display, subgr- uh, display contents 
does not have any box model effects. It does not have a height, a width, but you can still do some other stuff with it. It's essentially for semantic reasons. Like, okay, so it's still kind of hacky to use that. It's still kind of hacky to use insulin grid. So got it. Okay, so the next thing that I'm going to talk about are media queries. Um, media queries level four is kind of interesting as well. So something that you can do with media queries level four is device orientation, portrait versus horizontal. Um, also resolution. So you can have a print media query that has a minimum resolution of a certain like DPI or DPCM. Um, that's just per centimeter. And also you can have uh, qualifiers like not with less than or equal to a value. So you can have um, those different logical operators in your media query statements. So those are going to be much more robust in the future. Again, this is still under draft. So I don't know. I don't think there's much support for this yet, but it's kind of getting there. And then kind of along that same vein, um, I've been playing with ambient light queries lately. Ambient and light queries? What? Yeah. What? what is this? <laughs> So ambient light queries, essentially what a lot of the updates to browsers are doing are allowing you to use the browser outside of itself, like outside of just sitting at a desktop, typing text into a URL bar. Ambient light queries use your browser's light detection to allow you to style web pages based on the amount of light that's surrounding the user. So if they're outside and super bright, then you can send darker text on a light background and bigger text. So it's easier to read. Or if they're in a dark room, you can send like a dark theme so that the background mm. is like black color and the text is white. So that's easier for a user to read. Um, and these are specced out right now in an editor's draft as well so that you can just write at media brightness dim at media brightness bright or normal, those three levels, um, and use CSS to apply styling based on that. Uh, right now, that's not possible in any browsers. However, in Firefox, you can use the Ambient Light API, mm. the browser API, to do this kind of browser detection and apply styling to your content based on that. So I was just playing with this this morning, actually, and it's really not a complex API. You just basically look for the luminosity of your browser input. Cool. Um, you add like a event listener to your window and it, the window or the, let me actually look up my code because I just wrote it. I don't want to lie <laughs> <laughs> as I'm sitting here. Um, I have to pull it up. But essentially it was like four lines of code to be able to apply a style to the body class and allow for uh, my browser to style the content based on the luminosity level of the light that surrounded me. And I tested it with my phone where I shined a flashlight onto it and it changed like automatically, it just dynamically changes. Um, I closed the light sensor with my finger and it automatically changed again. So um, instead of trying to find the code while I'm sitting here, I will link that code pen in the show notes and it works in Firefox in debug mode. It does not work in Chrome or any other browser yet. But it's a really cool feature, and I totally agree with the direction of letting the browser work sort of in context outside of just the screen itself. You know, I noticed recently room. that <laughs> Firefox actually has really good support for the C experimental CSS. Um, display contents was in Firefox months ago, and it just hit Chrome. Um, and I feel like whenever Rachel Andrews write, writes a code pen about some you know new experimental CSS, it's usually in Firefox first. So it, well, with Grid, they really pioneered Grid uh, Dev Tools. Yeah, it's like it, it, Chrome's catching up with that, but it's like it's funny to me because I still use Chrome almost always, but like Firefox is doing some doing some legwork here. 
Yeah, it's cool to see that, especially because uh, we did a show about Firefox Dev Tools a while ago, maybe like a year and a half ago, probably maybe more. two years ago. <laughs> I don't know. God, we're old. Anyway, we we learned all about Firefox Dev Tools from Helen Holmes. I learned about their console and their screen grabs and all these innate features that I didn't know existed in Firefox. They're actually really, really cool um, that you can use just like the in-browser terminal. Yeah. So that was cool to hear about. But yeah, go Firefox. Go Firefox. All right. Um, my one, next one is Font Display, which is a new CSS property coming out coming out. Soon, I believe it's in Chrome 35 or plus already, or it's in sorry, it's in Chrome, it's in Chrome already. Uh, Firefox, but I, I think IE and Safari don't have it right now. I need to double check that. But um, so what Font Display does is it tackles this problem where we all want stylish web fonts, but we all hate the performance hit that comes with it. And right now, to optimize web performance for fonts you have to do a whole bunch of JavaScript um, and more or less just do a bunch of checking. And so it's not its not super innate. There is a font API, which is also coming out soon, um, but it's not there in all browsers yet. Can you uh, use like font display swap or font display optional? Yes, exactly. So font display is this thing that's coming out soon. Uh, it was out. Is it what? out? I don't believe it's out everywhere. Oh, it might be like only Chrome sort of thing. <laughs> Let me double check because maybe I'm just... Going crazy. No, no, continue. Uh, continue, yeah, and I'll so, look up the... Yeah, basketball. so it's in Chrome, Firefox, but not IE mm. uh, or Edge. It'll um, never be in IE. Yes, uh, <laughs> but it should be on Edge before you can actually pervasively use yeah. it. Okay, so, um, yeah, so font display is this, is this property that says, okay, we're going to give you, the developer, an API with CSS to figure out how do you want your fonts to actually load properly uh, or load. There are a couple main properties. There is, and the one that, that people most people talk about is swap, uh, which is when you load the page, um, uh, the browser doesn't wait at all for, for um the web font loaded immediately loads um, a font, uh, which this is declared in your font family stack, the closest one that loads. Uh, and then once your web font does load, it swaps it in, and you can suddenly see your new shiny um, web font. And so this does add a bit of flash of unstyled text. So let's say your web font is Roboto, because uh, you love Roboto, and your fallback is Sans Serif. Um, you would see sans serif for, for that brief second while Roboto loads and then it'd swap in. So um, there's another property called fallback, which is a lot like the default behavior, but not quite. Uh, for fallback basically has a, a 100 millisecond waiting period uh, where it waits for your web font. And if it doesn't load in that 100 milliseconds, it will load the fallback and then, uh, and then it'll load the web font. But both properties are super cool because they make web font performance so simple. You don't have to think. You don't have to do a whole bunch of, you know, you don't have to inline a bunch of styles. You don't have to do a bunch of JavaScript. You just have literally your normal font family stack and then a one line of CSS and then everything's wonderful. So uh, that's super cool. And I can't wait for that to be ubiquitous across the web. And yeah. And your users see your content. That's the most important and thing he, there. And the users see your content immediately, which is the most important thing. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so then on that note, I do want to talk about variable fonts. 
variable fonts are really cool. Variable, I I can't speak. Um, So variable fonts essentially allow for you to send one font file to your users and use that font file to create alterations on it. So that means that you can change the width on some of them. It depends on how the variable font is coded itself, um, but changing the width is pretty common. Um, So you can send one style and then also have uh, light, font, a medium font, a bold font, and have it all just be one file. You have to send multiple files. Saves um, It's much more performant for a user. Saves data. Um, but also, a lot of these fonts allow for you to change the width of the font. So you can have a condensed version or a wide version from that same single font source file. Um, some of them, like there's a lot of experimentation right now with them, have sort of like inline uh, like lines and decoration, like a little cutout inside them that you can change the thickness of that and the size of that. Um, I saw an animation example from Axis Praxis, which is one of the sites that's really focusing on innovating with variable fonts. And they had a 1,000 character font that they were animating through to create this horse jogging effect. And uh, it was like text step. I forgot what the property was, but they were able to step through every single character in there, which I thought was so Interesting. I don't know what the performance implications of that are, like creating a font to have animations, but I thought that was like an interesting use case for it. Um, There is a lot of work being done in this field right now, but it's not something that we see in browsers yet, in any browsers. And so I want to give two resources if you're interested in variable fonts. And those are Axis Praxis, which is AXIS-PRAXIS.org. So Axis-Praxis.org. And also uh, V-Fonts.com. V-Fonts. Let me just double check that. V-Fonts.com is a resource that allows for you to see a variety of variable fonts and also play with some of the items that you can update. So like I mentioned, weight um, with... Sorry? Isn't it in Chrome right now? Variable fonts? Um, you can like see them, but there aren't uh, a lot of font makers, yes, so that's it's fair. hard. Okay, yep. I haven't seen them implemented anywhere. Like you can play with them, you could see it in Chrome, yeah, yeah. and see the differences. Um, but it's hard to find a font. I mean, there's there's a couple. There's maybe like thirty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I recently, as in like like three days ago, just saw this Microsoft site that uh has all about variable fonts. So uh, I'll link that in show notes too, but the the dev developer at Microsoft.com site has this huge page, a huge page slash animation on web typography and verbal fonts. Uh, oh, so, rad. So anyways, sorry. Yeah. So I just, I just recommend going and playing with them because there's a lot of different toggles that you can play with. Like you can start with a circle and make a flower out of it by using two different variable options on the font. Um, San Francisco is a variable font, fun fact. Ooh. There is one at least uh, where you can have the bold weight and the lightweight, so it just lets you change weight. But you know, it's things that are things are moving along. It's exciting. That's very exciting. It's super cool. I, I feel like this this is one of the, this is another thing that will have such a big impact on how the web looks. Because once we can use you know yeah. variable fonts, we can do so much things with typography, which is kind of a it's a graveyard right now in the web. Nineties <laughs> GIF typography is going to be back, my friends. It'd be amazing. <laughs> Um, okay, so my next one is the intersection observer. I thought I'd bring it back to some JavaScript. Um, okay, so the, and the intersection observer is this new API. Um, it's another one of these observer type things in the web. And what it does is that it allows you to observe essentially a page 
and it will alert you when a uh, element is, is uh, scrolls into view, more or less, um, or into view of ancestor element. And so this is really useful if you have a big page, and let's say you want to lazy load images, or you want to uh, load and remove table rows as you scroll through a list, or let's say you want to do an infinite scrolling. Um, the Intersection Observer gives you this really easy API that says, hey, you know, I this element is is crossing the user's viewport, run some JavaScript. Intersection Observer is so good. It makes, oh my God, it makes so many things so much easier. Just like like you said, lazy loading itself, that's solved now. Yeah. It's so nice. And like auto-playing videos yeah. and just a variety of things. Oh, it like, just makes it's, my life easier. It's, it's one of those things where we're like, Doing scroll stuff right now is actually pretty hard, or it's like it's convoluted. You have to do a whole bunch of stuff. There's this yeah. waypoints library everyone started using, um, but you know it's heavy. It's too. heavy, and you don't want to. You, you feel you feel bad. Like there's a sniff test. I feel like when I use that library, and so I'm just like, ah, oh, I wish there was an API, and now there will be. It's the web API. It's the intersection API. I, it's out in Chrome today. Alas, it's not out anywhere else, I believe. Um, there's a polyfill, uh, but there are a number of issues with the polyfill, but it does do a, a good chunk of work. Um, and the polyfill is by W3C, I believe. So it's like a official, quote-unquote. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's so exciting. I can't wait for Intersection Observer to actually be implemented in all browsers. Okay, I'll check. I lied again. It is out, except for WebKit. So oh, Safari, okay. uh, get your act together. Pretty annoying. Um, that's that is annoying because a lot of times that's where we want to use it too on mobile. Yeah, uh, Safari is the new IE, right? That's that's the new thing. But uh, anyways, we don't browser shame on this we network. Don't browser, okay, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, so intersection server like 100 percent is awesome. Super excited for that. The last thing that I want to talk about is something that makes a lot of different. Oh my gosh, we are kind of almost at the end of the show. Um, okay, so I want to talk about something called Houdini. And Houdini is essentially something that allows for the user, so the developers, the user here, to integrate with the CSS engine of the browser itself. So it allows for developers to get access to the CSS rendering model. And that means that developers can create any type of CSS property, they can alter CSS. Um, so a lot of these properties that we're talking about, like if they don't exist in certain browsers yet, once Houdini is implemented, that won't matter as much because you can implement them by applying a worklet or some code. So Houdini works in worklets. Um, and right now wait, there's wait, a couple- Wait, 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 what are worklets? Okay, so basically worklets with Houdini mean that they're different types of um, spec changes like if you've heard of service worker that's like a certain type of worklet um, there's the paint worklet there's an animation worklet there's a layout worklet a typed object model worklet um, there's a font worklet so all of these are different um, basically files that you'll write that allow for you to get access to the CSS uh, browser rendering engine very cool. So right now, they're sort of going through and working through some of these worklets. Primarily, Chrome is really leading the effort on this. There is some Firefox work as well. But there's one that's actually available right now in Chrome 65, and that's the Paint worklet, the Paint API for Houdini. And that alone gives us so much access to create things. Like, you can create 
properties that interpolate between each other. Like right now, uh, CSS gradients don't animate. You can't animate them because it's just the way that they're rendered in the browser. But if you create a worklet, like if you create a, um, if you write a Houdini script that's just like five lines of code, you can set new properties by using CSS variables and push those properties into your CSS. So then when you use that and you update your gradient by using those values, it'll animate. Like all the uh, values will animate because they're separate values now. They're not like a gradient in the natural sense. So you kind of change how your browser is rendering things. Um, I'll share a demo inside of the show notes as well. There's also this idea of like conic gradients that uh, Leah Rue has been talking about for a while. You can recreate conic gradients by using Houdini. So you can write a worklet, a paint worklet that lets you create conic gradients. And that means you can do pie charts. You can do a lot of different data visualization things with conic gradients. Um, there's a lot of examples that are kind of floating out there in the web. I would love to share some in the show notes. And also, I want to have another show to talk about this because there's so much to talk about. Houdini is 100% changing how we write CSS in the future, and I'm like super stoked about it. I can't wait to play with it more. We're at the top of our show now, so uh, I'll save it for another time, but we'll talk about Houdini another time. I'm excited for that conversation because I know nothing about Houdini right now beyond that it's supposed to be magic. Uh, That's why it's called Houdini. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm excited. Do you have any uh, final... APIs to mention before we wrap it up? Um, I have one more. Uh, it's it's super small, uh, and it's not super impressive like Houdini, but... <laughs> <laughs> I saved Houdini for the end. <laughs> I should have used this one early in the show, but it's, it, there's this experimental syntax called the pipeline operator that's coming into JavaScript soon, and it's just this little syntax sugar, and it lets you essentially, it helps, allows you to create chain functions in a super readable uh, manner. So, you know, so right now I'd say, hey, you have a, um, the, the classic example that MDN uses is that you have two different functions. One's called double, one's called increment. They both take a number and they both do something to that number. Um, if you wanted to chain those operators, you basically have a bunch of parentheses signs with you having them in each other over and over again. So let's say you want to double, then increment, then double, then double. Um, just a bunch of parentheses, essentially. Uh, whereas with this new chain function, you have your parameter the very first, and then you just write this pipeline operator and you just run it through the functions that it needs to go through, and then that's it. It's So it's a new syntax. It's just a new syntax. It's not magic like Houdini. <laughs> I feel like I feel ashamed for this pipeline operator now after Houdini. What? I'm, I'm sure it's great. <laughs> it's just not Houdini. <laughs> no, that sounds really cool. Um, so I want to wrap it up. It's not take up too much of your time. Thank you again to Kobiton for sponsoring our show today. So again, you can go to kobiton.com slash toolsday to get double the trial minutes. That's four hours of testing for free. It is a cloud-based mobile test lab. So if you need a test on different devices, which you should be doing, um, check out Kobiton, K-O-B-I-T-O-N.com slash toolsday. Thank you again for listening to our show. Um, if you want to follow us, we're on Twitter at Toolsday. We are on the Spec FM network, so you can see all of our shows at spec.fm slash Toolsday. Please, please rate 
review our show, share our show with friends, even better. That's how people hear about the show. Just send the show to one person. If you think that they would like the content that we are putting out there, just share it with a buddy. Um, and then if you want to support us, we have a Patreon. You can go and be an individual supporter on our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash toolsday. And uh, that's it for this week. We'll see you soon. 